Welcome to War Room, the official podcast of the U.S. Army War College Online Journal, graciously supported by the Army War College Foundation. Please join the conversation at warroom.armywarcollege.edu. We hope you enjoy the program. Make sure not to miss a single podcast and subscribe to A Better Peace, the War Room podcast at iTunes, Google Play, or your favorite subscription service. The views expressed in this presentation are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect those of the U.S. Army War College, U.S. Army, or Department of Defense. Hello, and welcome to A Better Peace, the War Room podcast. I'm Michael Nyberg, Chair of War Studies at the U.S. Army War College here in Carlisle, Pennsylvania. And I'm delighted to be talking remotely today to two good friends and award-winning historians, Kara Dixon-Vuick and Jason Vuick. Kara is the Lance Corporal Benjamin W. Schmidt Professor of War, Conflict, and Society in 20th Century America at Texas Christian University in Fort Worth, Texas, and the author of uh, History of the Army Nurse Corps, Girls Next Door, which won uh, an AHA prize, the, the Johns Prize, and the Rutledge History of Gender, War, and the U.S. Military. Jason is the author of uh, some of my favorite books, so just the titles alone, uh, The Yugo, The Rise and Fall of the Worst Car in History, and The Yucks, which is a history of the 1976 Tampa Bay Buccaneers, the only NFL football team to go through a season and not win anything. So Kara and Jason, it's great to have you here, even uh, through remote. I know we've had a few technical challenges, but uh, it's wonderful to have you here. Thank you. Thank you, Mike. Kara, I want to start with you. Uh, you and I met First, through your undergraduate advisor, and I want to throw a shout out here to Montserrat Miller at Marshall University in Huntington, West Virginia. Montserrat reached out to me. She was a good friend of mine from graduate school and said, I have this really, really special, really, really bright, uh, talented student here. Uh, would you talk to her? Because her interests seem to be kind of like yours. And I remember when you and I first had that conversation, I think you were already in graduate school at that point. Uh, and we, we talked to a wide range of things that you were interested in, military history, cultural history, gender history. So I guess I want to start by asking how you went through that very natural, very normal process of narrowing down to research questions that you've been working on really ever since. Actually, it all started in Montserrat's class. <laughs> um, it, was a, it was a history senior seminar, and we all had to write a paper. We got to choose our topic, and I was interested in the Vietnam War, and I was interested in women's history. And I realized fairly early on that I could combine those two interests if I looked at Army nurses who went to Vietnam. And so that that was my senior seminar paper as an undergraduate, and then I went to graduate school and wrote about these things um, in my dissertation, and that became a first book. And it it kind of grew into this broader broader interest in not just um, women and women's experiences in the military, but also sort of military perspectives about how to deal with women, how to manage women's problems, how to manage women's bodies, um, how the military uses women um, as entertainment, which was the next book. Um, and now I'm thinking about sort of broader meanings of women's military service what it means for women to serve, what it means um, in this next project in particular um, to exclude women from registration um, for for selective service. And so it's, it's kind of broadened in, in all sorts of directions, but it all goes back to that um, class with Montserrat as, a, as an undergraduate thinking about these amazing army nurses who went to Vietnam. 
So did you know when you left Marshall to go to graduate school that you wanted to continue on that exact topic? Or was that something that sort of evolved as you went to graduate school and, and, and got exposed to more different ideas? Oh, no, I was on a mission. I was totally on a mission. And <laughs> my advisor, um, Michael McGurr at Indiana, he kept saying, maybe you want to broaden out. Maybe you want to, you know, think think more broadly about some things. And I'm like, no, I am writing this story about these women, um, these nurses. Um, and, and you know, Dr. McGurr was right. He was right about all kinds of things. But he was right in, in that reading more broadly and thinking more broadly about social history, cultural history, military history, you know, helped me to place those women and that interest in a broader picture. Sure. Uh, but yeah, yeah I, to... I definitely arrived in Bloomington on a mission. Yeah, yeah. But you have to be able to provide that context, right? That's what our professional yeah. education in graduate school allows you to do. Uh, I want to come back to that, but I want to bring in uh, Jason into this discussion because, Jason, <laughs> I think this is actually something that you do incredibly well and incredibly beautifully in your book. So I want to start first by asking you, um, if I'm right in thinking that you have managed to find topics of some unbelievably spectacular failures uh, to write about. And if so, what is it about spectacular failure? I remember you and I talking about the 1984 Olympic project that you were working on. Um, what, what, what attracts you to these subjects and how do you find them? Who thinks to write a book on the you though? <laughs> well, I mean, I, I guess I've always been somewhat of a contrarian, you know, regarding, regarding history, not looking for, you know, uh, arguments in history, but I'm, I'm tired of hagiographies. You know, I, I don't, I was really disappointed. I think it was William Manchester did a book on the on the greatness of the New England Patriots football coach, right? Do we need another one of those books with your with your enormous talent, right? Um, David Halberstam, maybe I'm not sure who it was, but you know, it, it, I'm sure it was very good and well written. And but that doesn't excite me, you know. I I want books um, about oddballs and and odd things that that you could still draw a larger lesson from, you know, the 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 Buccaneers. Of 1976 or the Yugo, um, you know, were, were just phenomenal failures. Um, but within those, there, there are great stories about the the post-Tito Yugoslavia of Yugoslavs desperately trying to earn money in any way possible um, to keep the country afloat, knowing that if it doesn't stay afloat, it's going to break apart violently. Uh, or the NFL coming together and, and trying to expand uh, to new places, um, you know, like, like Tampa Bay, which, which wasn't a place. Tampa Bay was a body of water. Um, and the Buccaneers really created a sense of place, which is, which is lacking in Florida. I grew up there. Right. And so anything that creates a sense of place. And so these larger issues can be found in failure. And, and as someone who wants to write popular books, if you can draw someone with the hook, you know, with the title or the subtitle, um, you know, the, even better, even better. And so once I started with the Yugo, I, I think the Yucks was a natural, uh, the Sarajevo Olympics was the same thing. How could something so wonderful and at the time really beautiful, you know, the coming together of all these athletes in, in, a, in a poor country, um, not a typical Olympic country. Um, and then how could, you know, four years later, five years later, these people begin to kill themselves so violently? I mean, it, to me, those are no brainers. And um, so that's really what draws me to those topics. And like we were talking about with Kara, I mean, the other thing that I love about the way that you tackle these projects, you have a background in the Balkans, right? Your family is from there. You've been there many times. So you're, you're writing a story, as you said, that is that is trying to contextualize these issues that you that you're, as you said, it's not really a book so much about the Yugo as a question about, you know, how does a post-Cold War state begin to make this transition? 
Sure. And, you know, in, in, in part of it, my writing popular books and, and somewhat silly books from the title, but not silly books from the subject. I mean, it comes from my own experience as an historian and in graduate school and studying in the Balkans. Um, I'm 47 years old. I came a little bit late um, to writing a popular book uh, on the Balkans, right? Had I been you know, 10 years older, I would have been in a, in a, in a situation where I could have written one of the first books that came out and was very popular, like, like Misha Glenny's fall of Yugoslavia that, that sold in the hundreds of thousands. By the time I was in grad school and, and fighting through a dissertation, people were tired of the Balkans. Um, the wars were over. Kosovo war was over. Um, and I had lived through all that and traveled there. And I wanted to write something that in, in a way I could be heard that people would read. And, and I knew that even if I wrote the best book uh, on the Balkans and interethnic relations and hatred and, and, and family issues and mixed marriages, whatever, um, no one was going to read it. Uh, but I wrote the Yugo and I, I get invited to Harvard Business School to give a talk on the Yugo car. <laughs> right? I could have written 50 books on the Balkans and not been invited to Harvard to give a talk um, is the way I look at it. Well, I want to shift a little bit. I, I want to ask you guys a question. I don't, whichever one of you wants to tackle this one or both of you. When I give people writing advice, I have a sheet that I give to all my students on my advice on writing. And uh, one of the pieces of advice that I give is never rely for editorial advice on people that you really, really care about. <laughs> that is to say your significant other, um, it, because you're unlikely to get really good criticism, either because you've really made them mad and they want to criticize you or they don't want to hurt your feelings. So they'll say, well, this is kind of nice. So I guess I want to ask you guys what it's like for the two of you. Uh, do you read each other's work in draft? And I hear from the laughter already that I'm going to get a great answer. Do you read each other's work in draft? And if so, how does that go? Well, um, <laughs> we we also have very different writing styles, right? I can write a hundred thousand drafts, right? Um, all my first draft, nobody in their right mind wants to see because it's a hot mess. Um, by the time you get to the end, right, there might be something presentable there. Um, when Jason sits down to write, the period does not go at the end of the sentence until it is done done, like take to the printers done. <laughs> and so our styles are so different that it's, it's actually really hard for us to provide that criticism just because it's so different. Like if I say to Jason, this paragraph is great, but this middle sentence, right? Like think about doing this or this or this, that sentence interrupts the whole flow. Like it's integral to that paragraph, right? You just, you can't so, mess with that sentence. <laughs> so do you, if, do you tend not yeah. to read each other's stuff in draft? Do you tend to wait until it's published to read it? Or do you, do, do you end up reading it in draft um, eventually? Um, no, I, I, I think we read each other's things. Um, it's just that we're kind of standoffish. Um, you know, I'm, I'm not going to read Kara's drafts nine times like, like her, her peers and colleagues do and provide this great advice because she's such a consummate professional historian you know even when i was an undergrad when i'd have a professor say all right on the syllabus it would say first draft due october one second draft due november one i couldn't do that i'm gonna write I'm, i would hold back passages <laughs> so i could then add them later and then the professor would go wow you've done so much for your you know i i, I just write in this weird um, maybe ocd like fashion but it creates a finished product and, and Kara does so many drafts so i, I wait for hers towards the end 
um, when she's closer to being done. And then I say, flesh this out. I want more of this story. Um, so you let but, her, you let her kind of work through her drafts herself. Let, so I'm Kara, I, yes. I don't think I write a hundred drafts, but I certainly know <laughs> that the first draft of whatever I write, I'm writing to myself to figure out what's yeah. in my head. I, I don't want to show that to anybody. Um, but J- Jason, you're different. You're, are you more stream of conscious writing? Is that what I'm hearing from Kara? Um, I, I, I don't know. You know, I, I, I research topics, you know, let's say, you know, with the area of Olympics, I, I built spreadsheets of every single source, every single, you know, thing I can find from academic monographs to popular magazines to newspaper articles. I have, you know, various database subscriptions, many actually, um, through either TCU, through Kara or, um, on my own. And I, I just put everything together in sheets. Who should I interview? Where do they live? Anything else I should know? Um, and then I, I make, you know, kind of a chapter outline in my head. And then I write maybe the seven or eight things I need to get through for this broken down chapter. So I go by feel. Um, I'm a little odd that way, but it, it's worked. Um, you know, my, my first time I wrote and sold my first manuscript on the Yugo to Hill and Wang, uh, which is FSG Macmillan, you know, they offered me a contract and everything. And I hadn't done this. I didn't know people who had written popular books like this. Um, and when I get I got the the edits back and they were incredibly light and I was a little bit terrified um, because I thought, you know, I can't blame I can't blame an editor when someone reads this and says it's awfully written, <laughs> but yeah. it's worked for me. Um, I don't know. It's 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 strange. It's a strange way of, of writing, but it, it's worked. And, and so Kara and I have been able to not step on each other's toes, but we also help each other immensely. She points out larger themes. She's always, you know, look at the forest for the trees, look at the forest for the trees. And I, I get bogged down in funny storytelling that might not be good for the book as a whole. And I, I've been, I've learned to, to remove whole things and focus on the larger picture because of Kara. It's just a different kind of of book, right? So mine are making academic points and I'm trying to tell a story. And the more I've written, the more I, I think I've gotten away from the traditional kind of academic style of writing and try to tell stories as I'm making a point. But Jason's books are telling you the story and along the way you get the point. Does that make sense? Sort of the difference. Um, he's it telling does. a story put- in the book. Yeah. But you both come to a point where you're speaking to both. I mean, when I talk to mm-hmm. academics about Jason's work, I mean, you're certainly highly respected for what you do. And Carrie, your work is attracting a bigger and bigger audience all the time. So in a way, you're kind of moving to the same point from different starting points. And I could see yeah. where it would be interesting, the synergy that you could build as the two of you are taking your different styles and adapting it to the other's writing. I could also see where that would be potentially contentious <laughs> <laughs> we've learned we've learned how to how to you know avoid that type of editing and, and she is a, a phenomenal academic historian she's just just phenomenal I, i've learned that over the years you know when we married we were both in graduate school and i knew we were both smart and could write and read books and but i didn't realize i was marrying a, a you know such a first-rate academic and academics academic I'm, i've always been amazed by that i'm not very good at academic history i don't have the patience for it um i have a hard time discerning the field you know especially in eastern europe which was less defined as american history um and needs I, the languages I, that that are just i know you have some of the i know oh, you, yeah. you and i've actually had we've actually had some 
fun times over your being able to eavesdrop on people. But um, <laughs> but it, it's still it's more than one language that you need in that part of the world. Yeah, and and I I never really had a feel of what I needed to know and what I was engaging. Um, and so once I was free of that uh, as a writer. Um, you know, the, the story is key. Um, so Kara has to engage an academic field, um, an argument, add her argument to this pile. You, you know, the traditional historians, you know, the, mm-hmm. there's the field, there's a hole in the field, and I'm going to fill it, and this is how I'm going to do it. You know, that that intro to the dissertation or the master's thesis. And to me, I, I've i learned how to research. I know how to research. I know how to exhaust everything that's available and what I'm doing. Um, and so I do that. But then I'm looking to tell the story. I'm not engaging in any type of, you know, if, if someone has made an argument on the field, I'll put them in the book as part of the narrative, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, and I've done that recently in a book I'm writing with UNC on, on swamp peddling in Florida in the 50s and 60s. You know, when someone has made an academic argument, I'll bring that person or that, that work into the narrative itself. You know, it is it is part of the way that I uh, I have friendships with both of you. I get you know crazy texts from Jason where he's uncovered some you know crazy fact <laughs> about swampland development in South Florida, just something completely off the wall that I just can't wait to see what you're going to do with in a book. And Kara, you and I have these deep kind of historiographical uh, discussions. They're they're similar, but in another way, they're very very different in, in the way that that they go. So it's actually a lot of fun to know both of you and to watch the way that both of you work with evidence and and go forward. So as I'm seeing the sand starting to run out of the uh, um, technical hourglass here, the virtual hourglass, I definitely want to switch to talk to you about the projects that you're working on right now. Uh, Kara, I know you're working on a project on gender and conscription. Can you maybe talk a little bit about how you came to that and where you are kind of in the process? Um, I'm at the beginning. <laughs> I'm at the very beginning. of. <laughs> so this. you're on draft number 97 or what? Uh, right. <laughs> I've got maybe a couple paragraphs that are presentable. Um, How many times have brand. you written those paragraphs? <laughs> several. It took several months. <laughs> um, no, I'm, I'm more broadly um, recently interested in questions about women and selective service and conscription um, and what it means to, ex- to have excluded women from registration for selective service for so long. Um, and I think all of that is about to change with recent um, court decisions declaring that excluding women from registration um, is unconstitutional. I think that is going to play itself out and we're going to see women have to start registering. And so what I want to write is a short, and I'll say short um, because I keep trying to hold myself to it, um, but a short book that um, anybody could pick up and see that this is not the first time the United States has had these discussions or these debates, um, that it's been a a conscientious thing in American history um, that we've had moments when we've talked about and moments when we've actually come fairly close to drafting women. Um, And I just want to provide that background and that context for thinking about what it means um, to register women and what it has meant to exclude women from compulsory service. Yeah, I, I had read an early draft of something I guess you'd put together for a grant proposal that I wrote on. And, mm-hmm. and at about the same time, my daughter was asking me that some it had come up in school uh, and they were talking about conscription. And I said, well, you know, my friend Kara's writing something very interesting about this. So uh, obviously <laughs> there, there, there's a need for it. Um, Jason, uh, have you got the Swampland in Florida project wrapped up? <laughs> um, yes, it's with uh, UNC Press. It's um, uh, two days from now. I'm turning in everything. It's It's ready for proofreading. I've got hey, all the congratulations for the picture. Oh, thank you. It's been a fairly long road for this one. Uh, this is on where I grew up in Southwest Florida. It's on 
um, how these um, companies came in in the 1950s and bought up just hundreds of thousands of acres of swampland and uh, denuded forest land, cattle land, and divided them into you know millions and millions of residential lots, which they then sold to Northerners for $10 down and $10 a month. Um, this is how working class Northerners retired to Florida one installment at a time. Um, and so it, it's it's really about kind of the wackiness in the, in the interesting era, you know, when Levittowns were being built in New York and in uh, New Jersey and in Pennsylvania, these same type of Levittowns were being built not for working people, but for retirees. And this is how uh, Florida, in, in many ways, the, the great exurbs of Florida, not, not the urban Florida and not the country Florida, th this is how Florida was built. And so this is what I'm, I'm working on with a focus on some of the wily land scammers and, and some of the people that built cities and what these cities have meant. Um, the, ur the urban planning was somewhat poor. Um, the environmental devastation was great. And so really what these communities have meant for modern Florida. Every time I talk to you about this project, all I can get in my head is the uh, Married with Children episode where the Bundys go down to what Dumpwater, Florida, for vacation, and yeah, <laughs> it's it's all I can envision is something that would look like that. Um, yes, yes. Uh, <laughs> and then uh, you already do have an idea for a book beyond that, am I right? Well, I, I bat around ideas um, periodically. Some, some I, of which I, you and I have texted back and forth about, and that, that's been a lot of fun. I hope that continues. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> yeah, I, you know, periodically, I, I, I wonder if I want to return to Yugoslav history and do something related even to World War II, maybe even early communism. Um, but I'm also thinking of broader things. I'm thinking a book on um, an invasive species um, all over the United States, chapter by chapter, various interesting invasive species. I'm thinking a book on um, the the crazy phenomenon of the um, of, of Hooters restaurants and, and those type of restaurants and how they still exist today, um, unbelievably so, um, and and things like that. Just something that might draw readership that I can tell a, a broader story with the hook, you know, that's something you might want to grab on the, on your way onto an air, airplane or a flight somewhere or, or, you know, going on vacation to the beach. Yeah. Speaking of, I know no one's going on vacation to the beach or not many people, but uh, <laughs> I do like to end these things near the end by asking people what they're reading right now. So Kara, what's, uh, what's on your bedstand? What are you reading? Oh, geez, Mike, I'm a nerd. I read all this history stuff. <laughs> Yeah, that's okay. That's right? okay. So I'm, I've got books on the, the draft and oh, really boring stuff. Yeah. I'm, I'm a total nerd. <laughs> Jason always makes fun of me for this. Like, you need to read fiction. I'm like, no, I don't need to read fiction. I need to read no, I'm with you. I, monographs. I, I think oh. my academic training has broken my brain for fiction. I, I just I can't do it anymore. I'm, I'm, I'm doing what you're doing. I'm ripping it apart for argument and source and historiography. And most of the fiction I read, I just I just can't do it. Jason, what are you reading? <laughs> well, well, Kara's always doing homework. Even when she's relaxing, she's still doing homework, right? Um, I've been listening to, I, I'm walking every night with this, um, after the kids go down, after the coronavirus thing, I, I walk every night for long, long stretches. And so I've been listening to a lot of books on tape. And I've just rediscovered, after years and years of not reading him at all, John Grisham, just simple uh, pulp thrillers. Um, I've I've listened to his most recent ones. Um, and I haven't, you know, last time I think I read maybe The Firm, I don't know, and just out of college. I mean, sometime in the 90s is 20 years um, and I really enjoy it. And, and the more I listen to pulp, the more I read pulp, but also, you know, I, I read occasionally a monograph, but the more I read, and I think this is important for anyone um, listening who wants to write, 
um, and, and wants their writing to flow, read more and, and read pulp, yeah, read, you know, read, read sci-fi, read, read anything, read, read, read. And I think reading helps you write. Um, and, and certainly I, I find that I write better when I'm reading more. So you're not reading the same stuff. You're not reading each other's <laughs> stuff. You're not writing in the same way. Uh, yet you've both gone on to uh, remarkably successful careers at, at young ages. And uh, I look forward to seeing what else you're both going to produce. And even though they're going to be very different books, I look forward to reading all of it. So uh, Jason and Kara, I want to thank you for taking some time out of your busy schedules during quarantine and, and all of this to, to sit down and talk to us. Uh, and I want to thank all of you, our audience, for joining us. Please consider subscribing to A Better Piece wherever you get your podcasts for more great content. Talk to you next time. Thanks very much. And that concludes our program. Thank you for listening. The views expressed in this podcast reflect those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views, policies, or positions of the U.S. Army or the Department of Defense. Let us know what you think. Provide us your feedback, comments, or suggestions through our webpage at warroom.armywarcollege.edu and have a great day.